You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, All right, I'm going to give you my James Lipton question. Uh, Charles Bukowski said, find what you love and let it kill you. How does that make you feel? <laughs> you know what? I think it's too much on this find what you love thing. Find what you're good at, right? Because if you're good at it, you will love it, all right? Because uh, here's the whole here's the problem with find what you love, okay? If I had my way, I would have been the next Steve Howe, okay? I didn't have anywhere near the talent to become the next Steve Howe or anybody like him, okay? So find your love is a stupid piece of advice if you're not fucking wired to do what you love. And what if you're only a teenager and, you know, you love, you know, I, I could go on about all the different examples, right? But if you can find what you're good at, that's um, kind of fun to be good at something, you know? And people will pay you for it and you get accolades and promotions and shit like that. It's just like, oh, I kind of like being good at things, you know? Hi, I'm Ben Goodman. And you're listening to 2020. And if you haven't figured out by now, my compatriots are Corey Peza and Siobhan Cronin. That's us. Hi, guys. Hi. Can you see me? It's so dark here. <laughs> Even a You've week later, still haven't, still haven't fixed it after a week, Siobhan. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the hell? Get on that shit. Like, what kind of girl doesn't have, like, a selfie light? It's like, time for Honestly, one, like, guys. you need to get your priorities straight, girl. Apparently. Shit. Coconut oil. Solves all the problems. But this week, the guy solving all of my mental problems, wondering what the hell's going on with all the the retail landscape after the COVIDs. Uh, we have G. Jolly, who also proclaims that there's going to be a civil war, which, to be honest with you, with the winds outside, I, I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, this was a pretty wild episode. We went we went a little off the rails and talked about some interesting things. So Some eclectic, eclectic topics, for sure. Right. <laughs> so check it out, part two with Gene Jolly. Hello and welcome to another episode of 2020. We are so happy to welcome back our guest, Mr. Gene Jolly. Old industry dog was the the way you described yourself in the first episode. <laughs> 68 I think I earned the title of old industry dog <laughs> well you certainly don't talk like an old industry dog in the best of ways you have a lot of amazing stories and super sharp I mean your memory your memory is incredible though I, I sent a message to Ben and Corey over the break and I was like wow it's no it's amazing you I, I feel like you recall stuff with so much accuracy way beyond like what my brain can even handle but some, uh, you know some things don't, don't, get, don't get me down one of those alleys where <laughs> You know, it's on the tip of my tongue, you know, (laughs) so annoying. It gets worse. But anyway, in in part one, for anyone that, you know, hasn't listened to that yet, get on it, go check it out. Part one, we got into a lot of interesting, yeah, a lot of Gene's background, um, talking about merchandising. We talked about the Beatles. We talked about everything. Can't even describe it in one sentence. But, um, you know, one thing we started talking about on the, you know, speaking of musicians and releasing music is kind of this saturation of 
songs being out there and you were talking about how people might only listen one or two times to a certain song then you know the discussion of is there still good music being produced um i wanted to talk a little bit about market saturation maybe it's not the right term but you know what does it look like when you know you're at guitar center and there are other companies like sweetwater or sam ash or other you know retailers that are doing kind of in a similar space ebay um, reverb yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious to hear how you handle that when, you know, there are all these other retailers popping up. What does it look like at a place like Guitar Center, you know, dealing with that competition? Yeah, I think the key is figure out what you can excel at and then just double down on doing that. Don't try to be everybody else. Um, Sweetwater has one retail store in uh, right. Fort Wayne where they're headquartered. It's a great, it's an amazing store. All right. They do, do a killer job there and all that. Um I, I, you know, I know the management there, and and uh, you know, we talked like any plans for retail. Like, no, no, we're just, <laughs> we're just we do we do this store because we have a local clientele. They drive from hundreds of miles away, and uh, all that. But we, uh, but no, we, we we do we do what we do. This is our singular focus. If you go back to the late seventies when Chuck had a recording band, and people wanted to buy, it, they lo- loved his service. They wanted to start buying stuff from him. He just basically started selling products and uh and and just you know built a, a mail order business with phones and catalogs and eventually a website and all that and just you know 40 year 40 plus years just consistently continued to grow uh his concept and, and, and improve his concept didn't go off in a million different directions and uh you know built uh, one of the most successful companies in the history of the music products industry um and just basically just uh, you know sold sold his uh, sold his shares uh, recently for you know quite a bit of money. Um, but he uh, this gets back to the strategic thing. Sam Ash family um, has own uh, started uh, started Sam Ash Music in the 1920s, so they're approaching oh, wow. the 100th anniversary. Um, primarily a retailer, they do they do some e-commerce, uh, but primarily a retailer. They uh, They've been about 50 stores, primarily the East Coast and the West Coast, some some stores in between. Uh, but they've got a very successful formula. It's a fam- family-run business. Um, Ash is still working the business, and uh, they're, they're very good at it. They're really good stores, uh, highly respected, and uh, and shops in the markets where they exist. Uh, GC, uh, GC's ambition was always to be the coast-to-coast uh, retail during the early days. Uh, the folks who really built the business after the founder, that was their vision. Uh, and uh, it was very difficult. You know, they, they, they weren't professional retailers. They didn't know what the hell to do. But they just, they just, they kept, they pushed and they, and they brought people in and they kept trying. So GC's, you know, GC's cornerstone is the stores. Um, but they've gotten, they've gotten very good at e-commerce. And uh, uh, as a result of uh, having support uh, e-commerce, they've got contact center. And that also supports the stores as well. So they're they're really the omni-channel giant, uh, where they they cover all those bases. Uh, and then you've got you've got you know uh, I, I love going country and walking into uh, an indie store. It's run by a an owner operator who's got the lights on. Um, uh, Man- Manchester Music Mill up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, uh, uh, I just never even walked in there until recently. And uh, Joe Lacerda. Joe Lacerda, Joe, met Joe, a good friend of mine, uh, died in May, and his widow was left with a broken heart and a lot of music gear, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, we, we helped her out, sell some of it, but realized that the rate it was going was going to take 11 years, 
which she didn't have. Um, and so uh, somebody suggested I called Joe, and Joe came down and spent a few hours and uh, gave her a very fair deal and hauled it all away and uh, all that. So he's built this incredible indie store uh, up in Manchester. Uh, and it's so it's like that all over the country. So they're all completely different business models. Don't try to be something you're not wired to do um, and you don't have the resources to do. Find, find your niche and do it really, really well. So that's that, that the success formula is find your thing and commit to it and, and, and really, really, uh, and really stay true to that. And when you try to try to be what you're not or you're all over the place, uh, uh, unlikely to work. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice, and that, that obviously applies to just about anything, whether it's retail or music or, you know. But yeah, I always wondered that because, like Ben mentioned in you know one of the previous episodes, having gone into Guitar Center, sometimes you see there's not a lot of stock on the wall or something, and you're wondering what's going on. And then other stores got a lot of stock, so I always wonder, you know, how the different, um, you know, other businesses interact and how it affects what goes on at, at Guitar Center or Sam Ash or Sweetwaters, because you know, to a lot of us, you know, the people that are buying the product, it's hard to know you know, what, how those things actually work behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the biggest problem, uh, keeping guitars on the wall right now, is sales are vastly higher than uh, supply. Uh, demand is vastly higher. So that that's, you've heard all these stories about containers off the port of LA and not getting unloaded fast enough. It's affecting many businesses, including the guitar business. How about the ukuleles? What's up with the ukulele? Everyone in the freaking world wants a freaking ukulele. In fact, I believe it's the number one instrument on the planet, so it's not a recorder anymore. I I know people in the Can music Can you stop in, saying retail, ukulele, please? <laughs> I know people that sell ukes in the, it, that say that in the last like year or two years, they've sold more ukes than like 30 <laughs> years combined. Joe Lacerda, I'm sure, being one of them. Yeah. Uh, why? It's a female. Why the uke? It's so simple, all right? Um, it's cheap, it's portable, and it's easy to play. So my uh, 14-year-old granddaughter, who I'm giving guitar lessons to, started on the Ute, just went on YouTube, got a Ute, went on YouTube, started figuring it out, and before you know it, she's playing songs on the Ute, okay? She, re she required no help, just a, a something that was very easy for her small hands to handle. Um, I, I can take it around with me uh, on, on family trips and so forth. So it's just like, it's super accessible, 100 bucks, uh, easy to play and highly portable. It's a perfect, the perfect instrument to getting started. Uh, now, why it took all the years it did to become as popular as it is, is, is beyond me because it's always been there. It always had this potential. Um, and, and there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of hypotheses on why it, it suddenly took off. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember when, when Paul McCartney played something on the ukulele and the concert for George, I think it was 04, so 17 years ago. Um, there was an instant huge spike in ukulele sales, right? But that was just one thing. That's but the Beatles it, thing. It was a Beatle. It was a Beatle, right? So not to be discounted, right? And it was this Jake, whoever's face is, the Hawaiian guy, uh, or Chinese guy, who, phenomenal. The dude who does Over the, the Rainbow? No, that's a different guy. No. This is the virtual yeah. guy. Right, this this oh, guy, okay. the new of ukulele, right? So, so, uh, so that guy, that guy got a bunch of other people interested. It, it just, it's, it seemed to like just things started feeding on each other. And now let's get this momentum because there's this whole thing in, in, in retail and manufacturing. The more something that's out there, the more momentum it creates for other people to jump on it, right? You, you want, when you launch a product, you want to get units out into the field because other people are going to go, where'd you get that? 
right? And then there's this whole knock-on uh, effect that happens. So uh, something happened with Ukes where they've kind of reached critical mass, and it's pretty unstoppable right now. But I think the fundamentals are that it's uh, inexpensive, portable, and easy to play. Um, four strings, not six. Uh, so you can get your head around that pretty quickly. And, uh, and by the way, my granddaughter, uh, who's progressing rapidly on guitar, she, she developed, you know, the hand, like the, her hands were used to all the stuff there. So she, she was a very easy transition to guitar for her. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, let me ask, so kind of going back to merchandising or, you know, working in retail and deciding what products to sell or carry, you know, as being a, a lot of people that aren't, you know, actively you know, playing music all the time, let's say, how do you stay in touch with what musicians want or what, what is going to be successful? I'm just curious how you figure that out, you know, because for me, I'm playing music all the time. I know what I want, but maybe if I worked in industry, it might, it might be a little different. So how, how do you, how do you stay in tune with that? Uh, well, in retail, it's, it's, it's fairly easy because you've got the stores. Uh, these are all active musicians there. Think, think of like a trader on the floor of the stock exchange. Like, they're in the nerve center of all the action, right? A, a, a salesperson on the floor. I mean, to the point where manufacturers are going around, going to the stores all the time, you know, picking the brains of the, on the, of the floor staff because they're talking to customers all the time. They get the phone calls. They, you know, they have their finger on the pulse. So you've got uh, active musicians talking to other active musicians, and uh, they're a great source of information. The manufacturers are a great source of information. They're doing their research and so forth. And the, mer the merchants, it's their job to know. So they're, they're, they're following the industry trade publications. They're following uh, what's going on at the artist level. You've got to watch what the artists are doing because any major artist bought, starts using some new guitar, some new amplifier, whatever, suddenly you see a spike in sales because, uh, you know, when I, when I was a Steve Howe fanatic, I had dual showmen just like Steve Howe. I had a Gibson ES-175 just, just like Steve Howe. I had a Maestro Fuzz Phaser. Just like, I, I, I had to have Steve's rig because I wanted to sound. I didn't want to be any risk that I couldn't get a sound. So whatever. And Benny, you've, you've lived this yourself and you know, it's just very, very common in the industry. So, um, so the, yeah, so this, this, you, oh, you I thought you were going to end this, this story was saying that you didn't sound like Steve Howell, regardless <laughs> of the fact that you had a showman and I, all the delay. I, 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 Cause I, here's what I did. Like you could play through Eddie Van Halen's rig and I'll play through it. And I'll tell so, you what it sounds like me. And that sucks. I could get a pretty good Steve Howe sound. Oh God! I tried so hard to play. It's in those Skeletor-like hands. Like he is, like he literally is a crypt keeper. But he knows, like you see him, and now he comes out on stage. He's like Bob Barker's older brother, and he just comes <laughs> out there, and he's he's literally a skeleton. And the ES one seventy five does not behoove him. Like it's literally ridiculous. But he plays, and you're like, how does this guy know? And I imagine he's one of those guys that has, if he had Alzheimer's, he could still play all the Yes catalog, but not know where he was because yeah. he just literally is so programmed he's just, he's these just, ridiculous things such a phenomenal guitar player but you know when i started down that path i was like 17 you know i didn't know i didn't have that talent you know i'm like i'm gonna give it everything i got you know <laughs> and i worked really hard at it and after three years like i improved but it's like like no i am like I, I i'm not fit to wash his shoes okay and you know and so some people are that level i mean steve howe one guitar player guitar player of the year you know, the, the readers voted him number one five years in a row. They, they, and then they created this rule that if you win five years in a row, you're retired. You can't run anymore. So then Steve Morris won five years in a row. It's like it's like these the new nose. These people are just they're like superhuman, and it's and it's uh, it's great. It's it's inspiring. 
gets a lot of people inspired, revved up the play. You know, Nuno says he heard Van Halen in 78. He's just, oh, my God, what is this, right? So, Eddie, how many fucking players did Eddie create? You know, it's just like people just going, what? You know, so it's just one of the magic components of this industry. Yeah. As someone yeah. who started off with, with that, the musical background, you know, throughout your career, how have you kept um, the music side of your life uh in parallel with that very difficult very difficult yeah um when i get when i left boston um i started i advanced pretty quickly in the industry after that boston was like a learning thing that didn't make any money like long good learning long learning thing but you know going from boston to florida to southern california oregon back in, back to southern california and and then you know changing i don't know how many studios i put together and then have to rip them apart and move so it was, it, it just got in the way. It just, I just did not get to play. You know, we would have jams at my house. I keep my hand in it, but for a long time, I didn't get to play that much and certainly didn't get to record songwriting and all that. I, I, I was doing a lot of writing in the late eighties, early nineties, and I didn't write, I didn't write anything until two years ago. So, so now I'm, kind of, I'm making up now, now I'm retired. So I've got, I'm talking to you on my, for my rig right now. And, uh, and so, you know, I, 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 I'm in here every day, you know, and, and whether, I'm writing or I'm just playing my guitar or tracking or mixing or, or studying about, you know, mixing. Oh my God, what a, a rabbit hole that is. There's so yeah. many branches to it. Corey's right? um, like, preach, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, but the career thing, you know, at post-Boston, it became very difficult to, uh, to, keep, to keep my hand, you know, firmly in itself. So are you excited now that you're retired that you can go back and do music? Because I feel it's, it's like one. So first off, if you were playing Steve Howe, Let's just start with, you're probably pretty damn good unless you're just delusional because those songs are <laughs> intense, man. Yeah. Now, so I, I, what's it like now getting back on, on on the saddle? I don't have those chops anymore. I think something happens with your, you know, whatever, the hands and all that. I won't get those chops again, and I don't want to. I, it's not what I want to do. I, I mostly interest in, I want to do two things. I want to hang out with friends and play Beatles tunes and other songs from the 60s that we love. Um, and I want to, and I want to write and record stuff so that's that's what i've been mostly doing you know I, I i had my prog era i loved it i still love that stuff so much um you know the the, the steve Howe, the steve Howe, bruford wakeman era yes uh fragile and close to the edge it's just like still just astonishing you know a little hold up forever uh I, I got to see genesis when uh Peter Gabriel was the lead singer. I saw him four Lamb times. Lamb lies down on Broadway. Like that's Lamb. that's that's Genesis to me. Not like Peter Gabriel. Uh, not not Phil Collins coming out and, <laughs> and hobbling and <laughs> able to play drums. And, and Steve Hackett on guitar. And by the way, I, I saw Steve Hackett's touring, doing all this old Genesis stuff. So I'm in the yeah, L.A. Uh, oh God, one of the venues in L.A. about three years ago. And it was just like it's just it's stunning. So. That era, that's why I say my brain, 65 to 75, so much of the stuff I love is, you know, I grew up when Zeppelin hit, Hendrix hit, Cream hit. Like, I, I go back and go, like, how did that happen? You know, it's like... It's wild, yeah. Unbelievable, you know, uh, artists who have uh, just set such a high, high bar. You know, it's so much, yeah. it's much fun to listen to. What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who who knows? That's we, we're always. I want to I, I know what actually what your new music sounds like. So it's, uh, you sounds like you progressed from progressive. So now that you can't play like a shred master, what what uh, you said you want to play like happy Beatles music, but like but what are you writing? Uh, uh, what does the Gene Jolly original sound like? Stuff has become more political, more personal, and I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, think out of the box. Honestly, Chris Cornell inspired me with Euphoria Morning. Like 
I don't want to write the same shit. I, used to write. I want to do different stuff. I want to start. So one of the techniques I use is I'll just play and I'll just start freeforming on different riffs and all that. If something starts sounding good, I'll just record my iPhone and then I will purposely won't listen to it for a month. And I have a bunch of that stuff. Then I go back and listen to it later because a month later, you'll know whether it's shit or not, right? Like in the moment, it can be good, but then it's not. So I start collecting those and, and uh, a bunch of that stuff is ended up is in songs. Uh, sometimes two of those riffs end up in songs. So it, wow, this fits with that, weird. Um, and uh, my weakest thing is lyrics, so I've been wor working a lot harder on, on lyrics. Um, but I, I'm primarily interested in um, the craft of writing and recording music. And uh, that's, that's what, uh, you know, what I would have done had I realized, you know, when I realized I wasn't gonna be Steve Howe, I have all this passion for music, I would have focused on that. Decent singer, um, but I, I think I have decent songwriting chops. I've been told by other people like, that I do. And but you, that's a craft. You just need to practice. It. You need to do it. You need to put the ten thousand hours in. And I, I, I have the time now, you know. So um, I do it. Uh, and I have friends I collaborate with on it. And you know, it's uh, it's great. A lot of it's solo, but some of it's collaborative. And it's a big learning curve. So uh, I I don't have to rip my rig apart. Well, not true. I ripped apart my California rig to move to Boston. I'm now in an apartment in Linfield, and I will rip it apart again in January when we move to our new home up in Methuen, and uh, that'll be it. I thought my wife and I have a pact. One or both of us will die there. We are not moving again. All right. That is it. End of journey. Yeah. <laughs> so can I, can I ask, did you, did you choose to retire because you wanted to pursue kind of getting back into music, or can, can you talk about why you chose to do that, or... Um, I, I just, I retired a year earlier. I, when I went to work for QSC, um, I made a five year commitment and, uh, and, uh, I, at the end of, uh, about halfway through the fourth year, um, a couple things happened. First of all, um, I needed surgery on both of my feet. Um, I, I get this plantar fasciitis and it's a long, boring thing, but incredibly painful. Yeah. Um, and, and I need to do that. And then I had to go to a trade show. And it was just in chronic pain. Trying, I'm in sales. I'm trying to be standing up, talking to uh, you know, to dealers and so forth there. And it, it was just, it was just brutal. So uh, so that was happening. Um, my uh, my grandkids, you know, <laughs> my oldest grandchild turned 14, um, and you know, my wife and I looked at each other like this. This time is just going by so fast. So uh, and then the political situation. I decided to get uh, heavily politically involved in the 2020 election. And, uh, and I said, you know what, I can't do the job and devote what I want uh, to do um, is these other things. And uh, so, you know, I, I, would, I would put it at the top of the list, take care of my health. Uh, close behind is, is uh, spend a lot more time with daughters and grandkids. And the third thing was political. They're pretty closely clustered, though, that these are not, these are like three big priorities. And uh, so, uh, so Joe uh, Pham at QSC was, was cool about it. Um, and he... Uh, he put a woman in charge of sales uh, for my, I was in charge of the Americas and a woman who'd never been in charge of sales, but super talented, very accomplished in a number of other areas, said this would be a good portfolio growth thing for her. And so I got to spend four months with her and she's just absolutely killing it um, uh, in that position there. So it was a perfect transition. We didn't have to bring in someone from the outside who might or might not work out, but in a, a superstar from the inside and just expanded her portfolio. And I think it, I think it went extremely well. So I felt yeah. good. Felt good leaving. Like uh, it's in you know Anna's you know, going to take care of things, and she absolutely does. So nice. Do you still have your toe in anything as like you know on a consulting type of basis? 
No, no, that's one rule, one rule I made um, is like, no, no, it's because then you completely violate all of the things you're talking like, it's not about. The time, it's not about the time you spend in the consulting work. It's the time your brain is, in, is engaged in trying to figure shit out. That's the shit that wakes me up at two in the morning. That's the, like, no, no, no. Like, my brain has enough stuff. I need to discipline myself. No, 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 no. Like, how, how many months have you been asking me to do this? Okay. The only fucking reason I did this is because I like him, okay? Um, and, and, and I don't know why I like him, okay? We, that much <laughs> we ask ourselves that question every day. <laughs> but he's funny. He's super talented. Um, and, he, you know, he just, he's a cool guy. So uh, I I, uh, I don't do this kind of thing because it's like, oh, i got to get out of my comfort zone. I, gotta, I, mean, I might say something wrong. I'm going to get canceled. <laughs> I can't get canceled. I'm retired. Fuck you. <laughs> there's well, our episode I, title. That, that, there's a there's a really important question in that because you know, as somebody whose brain never stops working, what's it like n- now? You're retired. D- like, what wakes wakes you up now? Because it, I can't imagine that your circadian rhythm just stops. Where you just go, okay, cool, I'm done with corporate life and doing this forever. Or do you just wake up and go, I can golf now? Like, is your brain still going? What's what's driving you now? I think, all right, so what you're, you're really asking a question about intensity, right? And intensity doesn't change. You are who you are. You're wired how you're wired. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be intense until I die, right? This is the way it is, right? I'll be a slower version of intense, but I'll still be intense. And that's what I think. What wakes me up at 2 in the morning um, and has for a long time is the emerging civil war okay and this is where we're headed um and that's not and i used to think that was some people just overstating it and the boy crying wolf and all that i don't think that anymore i think uh i think there's too many guns there's too much acrimony i think january 6th was a dress rehearsal um and there's just there's just too much crazy shit and there's good people uh on, on the polar opposite of my perspective who like hmm, would they shoot me or would they it's like, like, I think they would, you know, given the right amount of, you know, remember, like, Nazi Germany was not Nazi Germany until Hitler won the election in 33. And so he's suddenly shutting down the media. He's destroying the courts. It's a one party thing. And before you know it, the brown shirts on the street, crystal knock is going on. And, you know, the rest is history. That right? didn't happen. Right. Exactly. That's, that's what well, we have. Everyone's a crystal knock. Hold on. Listen, I, I really want to ask. For real, because Corey is hyper intelligent, and Siobhan, she's like a show winning horse. She knows everything. Do you know what Crystal Knock is? Yeah, of was? course. Yeah, you yeah. of course. So you say of course, Corey. Do you know what 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 Crystal Knock was? Okay, because I feel yeah. like that what what they teach in schools nowadays. Like I know my sixteen year old that lives in my house absolutely has no idea anything about that because they don't teach it anymore. I don't well, think. yeah, I mean, I, I went to a very progressive, like, arts school that had a lot of Jewish people. So, I, I mean, I think probably the education I got was a little bit, you know, not your standard American public school. And, and by the way, if anyone was, was conflating the fact that I was being sarcastic about the Holocaust actually happening and all the precipitating factors, I'm joking. It's sarcasm because yeah. I want to be clear that that Crystal Knock, for example, is something where in one night um, a whole area was just completely – just taken apart by people and hatred uh, because somebody was so smart they were able to control them all mentally and and it, they became so divisive it, it, it literally 
it was people, friends against friends, just because they were a religion. It was out of control. And it happened in one night. They fucking raided the town. They they pillaged. They raped. They lit things on fire. They broke stuff. Stole art. Well, the word, yeah, it's the crazy. word came from smashing the, of the windows, right? It Correct. Was, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. night of the broken glass, right? So yeah. it, it, but you say it happened in one night, but it, it was four years building. Four well, years it, it, shutting yeah. down, shutting down institutions and basically getting the propaganda out there that uh, these, these, these are vermin, you know, Jews are vermin and they must be exterminated and so on and so forth. And so when you, when you, when you start turning people into vermin and scum of the earth and so on and so forth, you're setting the stage. And this is what, this is how, how one side is talking about the other right now. It's like, you know, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, I used to think people were, were being overdramatic and so on and so forth. It can't happen here and all that. And I'm sure a lot of people in Germany thought the same thing there. Now, you know, we didn't have the we didn't have the destitute economic condition. We don't have the destitute economic condition that the Germans had, which which made you know Germany ripe for uh, those conditions there. So you have to be careful not to get. But but when I look at the amount of guns in the in the hands of the scenery, when I look at social media, I look at um, what uh, talk radio, Fox News, and so on and so forth are doing to create a parallel universe that has you know. Tens of millions of people, you know, totally bought into. You know what? I think we need a fucking revolution. Then, you know, that's the shit that wakes me up at ten in the morning. You know, that that stuff right now is, uh, it's just nutty. You know what's crazy is that if you go to Yad Vashem in in Jerusalem, which is the hand of God, or it's the it's the Holocaust Museum, there's a, a big saying, well, a quote that uh, on the wall from Henrik Hein in 1820 that where books are burned, human beings are also destined to be burned. And even though that's a 200, literally 201 year old quote, the same like mentality still exists, even with cancel culture, because we're literally just burning the books. That's exactly what we're doing. Like there are people that are saying you can't read to kill a mockingbird because they use the N word or you can't read the all these classic, uh, you know, uh, gone with the wind for fuck's sake. That's racist. Obviously, it's racist. It's supposed to be about racism because it was in a racist time. Like, what What the fuck? So- a story about racism is not racism. And anybody, anybody in the room who's saying it's racism knows damn well it's not racism. Telling a story about racism is not racism. It's exposing it, okay? It's telling the story. It's showing what happened. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's insanity. Yeah, you, you, uh, you referred to the... Uh- the emerging civil war. And I guess, uh, how do you feel, uh, in terms of social media and the media in general being a magnifying glass on a microcosm type of situation, as opposed to what's, you know, it's a big country, you know, hundreds and millions of people, you only see a small piece of that through the media. I guess how far along that, that emergence do you see things right now? I mean, I'm listening to this woman, from Facebook, who's, who's testifying every day on what she knows about what Facebook knows on the inside, uh, and and it, 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 there's, a, there's this big rebellion brewing inside Facebook. All the employees are going, "We're a horrible company. We're doing terrible things uh, to America." Um, in, in the name of profit, you know, they don't want to they don't want to change the algorithms because it's going to reduce their revenue and profitability in the stock price. You know, it's really that simple. So, uh, uh, yeah. U.S. government needs to regulate. Um, this this sort of business here. The government has regulated businesses going back over a century when they get too powerful and or corrupt and or you know fill in the blank. 
but this is just a, this is a very unusual situation here where um, a company like that with 2 billion users, and many of whom are active on a daily basis, learns how to manipulate the likes and the dislikes, you know, the angers and the likes and all that. And they, they know how to get things accelerated into, into polarization. Um, and so I'm not blaming them for all of it. There's no way they're responsible for all of it. Uh, I blame the death of Nate Dogg because he's not around to regulate anymore with Warren G. Did you catch that one? I don't know what they're talking about. Right? No, so, there's a song called Regulators from the 90s with okay. Nate Dogg and Warren G. And Nate Dogg, it, but, may his soul, hey. it, we, we miss him. Yes, thank you for that contribution. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I would miss him if I knew who he was. No, yeah. that's, I, yeah. I knew you wouldn't get that one, but it was just funny because there are going to be people that go, hey, wow, he went deep. You're right. I deserve that. Yeah, leave it, I was going to say, leave it to Beaver. Why don't you talk about Dennis the Menace, dude? Or like maybe like Looney Tunes. Like, like, can we talk about that? Or how about Tech Avery era Tom and Jerry? That's some crazy ass shit, dude. If you watch like those 1940s, 1950s Tom and Jerry shit, like that's definitely racist and some crazy ass Nostradamus bullshit that like, Wow! Like they don't show it anymore because, well, I mean, even if you talk about the Looney Tunes, like you can't have Speedy Gonzalez, you can't have Pepe Le Pew, like that's not that's not okay. He's like, going around smelling like shit, trying to rape everybody. Like that's not okay anymore, <laughs> apparently. But it was cool for a while. Oh my god! I don't know where I was going with that, but I liked Pepe Le Pew. He had a cool thing going. Well, yeah, I mean, coming back to social media, yeah, even as a bystander on Facebook, right, I, I'm, I'm pretty surprised on a daily basis with the, the vitriol that I find there and only Good there, word. you know, the, 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 how people get very worked up and very angry about stuff very quickly. So it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's scary. I, I totally agree. The way people talk to each other. But don't you, know? you think it's like an yeah. exponential level of yellow journalism, Siobhan? Because like I feel like like the whole concept of yellow journalism or like whisper campaigns. Like it's like basically like whisper campaigns, except they're just exponentially more. And all the fucking crazy Looney Tunes can be like there are other crazy Looney Tunes that believe the Earth is flat and that there's fucking dinosaurs concurrent to human beings. Holy shit! There's someone like me, and there's groups, and there's thousands of them. And it's yeah. like a whisper campaign. And that's what you're seeing on Facebook because it's like, you know, they're posting a meme and they don't realize the meme is like, it means something deeper than their brain I, can even handle. I would also, I would also say, and in my experience, about 80 to 90% of the people that are super passionate on social media about their cause, if you talk to them in person, that falls away immediately, uh, immediately. And so this is why I, I, I'm saying, and I've said this on the show before, we are incredibly ill-equipped to be a political discussion show um but <laughs> as far as like uh the actual intercommunication thing telling us to shut the fuck up on this issue not not at all i i just want to make sure the audience knows that that uh at least i am very stupid so anything i say take for the grain of salt <laughs> you're actually right people people are paper tiger you know online they're all vitriolic and you get like at, at, in the bar it's a complete vibe okay yeah uh, uh, so that's that is definitely. I have end. friends well, that are on the the opposite end of the political spectrum that post some very, you know, post those memes and those those statements that they forward with much conviction. And then, like you said, you sit at a bar, and I go, like, like really? And like, well, not like that, but you know, I kind of feel that. And then it's like, I, I think people need to you know hash it out a little more it's you know it's like it's like the youtube comment section no one would say half the shit they say if they if they were worried about getting punched in the face 
<laughs> but I, I think I think that like it, it, we're really in in a good place though, as far as it, we could say it, we could put it out there, and if people want to agree, they can they can either share it or they can turn it off, which is a really cool yet terrifying exponential concept, you know, because now everyone has uh, the stage and it's just a matter of which stage you want to look at. And so now the, the, the playing field is leveled, whereas you used to have television and you had radio mm-hmm. and you had a, a newspaper. Now anybody can go live stream a fucking crime or shooting someone or whatever, and, and it's all happening probably right now. And that's the crazy thing is you like, who even knows like what's going on next. It's scary. Yeah, that's it. No, it certainly is. <laughs> Well, how do we get back to what was the topic at hand? <laughs> I, did, I did have a note uh, from the first episode that I, that I wanted to jump back to because I, I, I saw a little bit of passion uh, sneaking out of Eugene when you mentioned thieves. You know, as, as a retail, you know, empire, they're going, was theft such a big part of what you had to deal with that it warrants that, that reaction? The, uh, unfortunately, the worst problem is uh, employees. Um, and some of the worst times of my life were finding out that somebody had ripped us off, you know, we'd take a physical inventory and find out there were four Sony DAT machines worth $2,000, you know, each missing along with, you know, lexicon reverbs and blah, blah, hire an investigator, figure out what it is. And it's just like, you know, it's just stab in the back kind of stuff there. So the, 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 the shop lifter, uh, when, when you remember when we're also was on Newbury street, right? Right. Thing. Right. So, oh, yeah. We used to, I, I used to chase people down, you know, mass app, mm-hmm. just come in and grab a guitar, run down the street, whatever. Uh, usually unsuccessfully retrieving the guitar. But, you know, you have that sort of stuff there. And um, there's ways to manage that. But uh, really more internal theft was the, uh, uh, you know, more the more the heartbreaking, frustrating, you know, part. Because usually, it's bit, you know, you, you're working shoulder to shoulder, you know, so usually it's this fraternity, sorority thing. And, and then... Somebody, somebody's ripping you off. So that's, that's yeah. the worst. Yeah. Was yeah. that something that was considered uh, even, you know, or at least discussed when you were at the higher levels in, in companies? Oh, yeah. This uh, guitar center has loss prevention department, you know, um, uh, to deal with that. And all, all big retailers do. Because it's just, uh, if, you're, if you're not constantly figuring out what the latest thing is and have ways to manage it, you will get eaten alive. Um, so, yeah, just the, it's the real world. Yeah. No, I, I remember when I was growing up, my mom used to talk about the store that she ran and she did like high fashion women's retail. But that's the same thing she mentioned was the hardest part for her as a small business was when she had to leave town to go on a buying trip and people it was employees that were mostly stealing, you know, it was not really the people outside that were taking stuff, but, you know, coming back and realizing stuff was missing. So it's interesting to think about when you have to scale up your business and you're, you know, having multiple stores across various regions of a, a giant country, having to deal with that sort of thing and who can you trust and how do you manage that, you know? Yeah. GC put a cycle counting protocol in place uh, after they started expanding after going public in the 90s uh, and, and theft was a huge problem. They, uh, a CEO um, promoted uh, an employee named Laura Taylor who built a whole operations, loss prevention uh, uh, infrastructure in there. And part of that was cycle counting portions of the inventory every week. So you, you, you wouldn't go a whole year take, taking a physical to find out you were missing a lot of stuff. And it was also very beneficial making sure the stores were replenished properly 
Because if, if the computer said at 11, you only had three, that's, that's a problem. You're going to run out. And, well, what do you mean? We have eight in stock. No, those are all ripped off. So, um, so there's, there's ways that you can use technology slash manpower to help manage the situation there, but it must be managed. You cannot just hope is not a, a strategy for handling law, you know, for doing loss prevention. You've got to have processes and personnel to handle it. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question about if you are someone that maybe wants to open up a small retail store, like a small music shop or a guitar store or something with music equipment, is, is that something that you think is a, a feasible, feasible idea now, you know, dealing with all these big, massive companies where you can order stuff online? I mean, is that something that people can sustain? And what sort of advice would you give to someone that maybe has that idea of opening up a smaller privately owned shop? Uh, Grant Sheffield left Guitar Center um, 2016, not of his own volition. Um, it was uh, after Aries took over, um, and uh, they uh, they made some they made some personnel cuts. So here's a veteran regional vice president, 25 plus years with the company, um, and uh, so he opened his, his own shop in Dallas called Tone Shop. It's been done so well. He just opened a second shop a few months ago. Right. And I see this all over the country. So if you are uh, a go-getter, if you're passionate about musical gear, if you like talking to people um, and uh, you, you, you give a fair deal, um, it's a great industry. It's, it, it, it has, you know, it continues to expand. The, the global financial crisis was a big exception, but since the Beatles, I mean, this industry just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. It's a wonderful thing. I, th- I think the more we have a, the more guitars to offset guns, uh, it, it's a good thing. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think guitars are an investment? Like, do you think, because I always tell people, and I I full heartedly believe this, that my guitar collection is my 401k. I get to play and people make fun of it, but I have literally like on paper made a whole shit ton of money. If I were to sell, that's not an investment if you don't sell. But do you think that like people talk about it, but like, do you consider buying guitars at this point if you know what you're doing an investment or is it like Bitcoin where it's like a total gamble? but still apparently an investment. I, I consider Bitcoin more of an investment than a guitar, okay? Um, Bitcoin, you know, if you understand the, the, the mathematics behind Bitcoin, um, if you I buy, don't. you buy a small amount of Bitcoin now and you hold it for 10, 20 years, the likelihood it'll be worth, you know, many times more than you pay for it is pretty good now, okay? And, and it's been a long road to get here, okay? And I don't want to get off on that. I, I, I have very limited expertise on that. Guitars can be an investment, Benny, but you have to become what you are. You have to become an expert on all the the years, the models, the pickup configurations, so on and so forth there, that most people don't have the interest or the time to really dive into. So unless you're willing to become one of those people who's astute enough to really understand what the hell it is you're buying and you know uh, the, the past, present, and future of that guitar, um, I don't recommend it. You know, But some people I know are into it, you're, and you're one of them. And have done very well with it. Um, Elliot Rubinson, that I worked for uh, at Thoroughbred, was a big collector and had, had a lot of great stuff that, that, that over the years, he, got, he told me how much he paid for it in 1970. I went to work for him in 96, and it's worth like literally 15 times what he paid for it, right? So that's a great investment. Um, but that's very specialized. And so it's not, not for the average person. It's, well, Brian, my brother, my twin brother calls me the truffle, the truffle pig, which I think is a very accurate metaphor because amongst the shit... I find the fungi that costs a lot. Is that your new credit at the end of the episode, the truffle pig? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. No, Actually, I don't that's a good one, Corey. Add that to the to the queue of stupid things that I do. 
<laughs> With pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, I don't know wow. how to get back to where we were before, so Ben derailed us. One word at a time, Siobhan. <laughs> One word at a time. It's a long road. Just remember, just remember that Joe Walsh will never guide you wrong. Correct. She's like, I don't know who that is. Canceled. Canceled. Life, life wasn't good for her. Do you know who Joe Walsh is? Uh, I know the name. Am I okay. embarrassing myself? <laughs> no, it's great. It's adorable. You're literally adorable for not you, knowing who Joe years, Walsh is. But like, you have years of discovery of Joe Walsh ahead of you. Okay. Okay, I'm looking. See, the right thing now. is, but I'm the inverse. So like, where you're discovering the new music, I'm discovering like Dvork and like other Bach. <laughs> like, there's more than one Bach. There's ten Bach, and some of them are good. Like I'm, I, I love like Siobhan has actually turned me on to a bunch of classical music because I feel like that that other than jazz, which is just like musical surprise, have, like sixteen children or something. Who? Uh, sorry. Yeah, he's a Did lot. Bosch and Bach have like sixteen children. Oh yeah, and they were and, all with like different people too. I'm sure. Nine, yeah, nine were composers, right? Or somebody. It's like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Think about that. It's wild. Yeah, what different era. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, the rock stars of the 1600s. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, what are your, you know, your plans, you know, moving forward with retirement? You're, you're getting a new place. Like, is it just to keep keep writing and you know enjoying the the music side that you've had to put on hold? Yeah, the main reason we moved back to Boston, we love Southern California. We have a lot of great friends there. It was it was it was hard, you know, uh, making that beautiful move. out there, man. Beautiful. Uh, oh, there's everything, everything about it, and, and it's a very expansive uh, state. Um, you know, the mindset is is progressive and it's open, and you know, just it's just everything about it we love. So, so we tore ourselves away from there. Um, we're here because. Our daughters and grandkids are here, and uh, we get a lot of family and friends here as well. Um, but you know, it's just like we made the move for 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 daughters and grandkids primarily. And uh, while we're here, we're just you know, retirement is not slowing down; it's just shifting uh, in the focus. So, so music has been my love since the Beatles, and uh, so I'll I'll play around with that. I also I also I'm a I'm a birder. I, I'm into birds. So I and I. About five six years ago, I got into bird photography, so I'm learning that it's a cool new thing. You know, I don't, I, I didn't know shit from Shinola about uh, using a camera, um, but I get it's just a triangle. It, <laughs> I, I get decent with a Canon power shot. So a year ago, I bought a, a, a nice rig, uh, Canon EOS 90D with a, a Sigma 150 600 millimeter lens. Just make sure that there's there's as much bokeh as you could possibly have so it, you just you look artistic and only like one little bit is in total focus and it makes you seem profound i've right. learned that yes yes people I, don't know that that's a trick that Corey's just laughing so hard he's like is that the only thing you can come up with yeah yeah so so that and uh i i uh, golf is uh, something i enjoy uh with friends and uh it's an ex incredibly difficult Thing. Hardest thing I've tried to learn. It's like guitar, you get to a certain level and you're at that level. Golf, you think you're at a level and then you find out, no, no asshole. You still suck and you just fall off that level and now you. What's that dude's name wow. who, who's been ruling golf since the dawn of time? Like, isn't there just one dude that, like, literally, like, everyone's like Michael Jordan or LeBron, like, and there's this oh, like dude Tiger in golf. Woods? No, no, eat way more than him. What's uh, You know who I'm talking about? He just always wins. Everything is just that one dude in golf. 
Tiger Woods. I just don't care about golf that's at all. So like, other than mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, like that's pretty much where my For golf. The last twenty years has been Tiger Woods. Uh, he's uh, we don't want to play golf again. He get into a bad car accident. Um, oh no! Many months ago, Not and Tiger screwed up his leg. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, but yeah, he's he's a phenom. He's the the two greatest golfers in my lifetime are Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking about tennis. It's Federer or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different sport, yeah, yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, no, I crossed my wire. That's how little I care about sports as a whole. Yeah. I, I, I literally am so disenchanted with sports that I can't even seriously make a joke because I'm thinking about Michael Jordan playing baseball. And he did, but like, not. it's not really a thing. Yeah, yeah. They all have balls. Okay, so I can see the confusion. Yeah, just don't be Ted Williams. <laughs> Anyways, question? Yeah, uh, no, it was just, just kind of seeing, you know, what your plans were. But I guess, I guess a good place to, to leave off our last 15 minutes here is, uh, you know, throughout your career, uh, if you could maybe impart some wisdom on, on our viewers and listeners, you know, to those that, that want to get into the the same space that you were in, you know, the retail merchandising and that, and then, and then maybe do want to, actually try to climb that ladder and, and have that influence and, and are you asking him to consult for for, for the moment briefly for the moment <laughs> Brief, yeah briefly you know some, Through some catharsis. sort of just catharsis okay is that okay, Gene? Can we uh, ask you like through cathartically I, like I, I think consult? you're talking about osmosis not catharsis it's transcendental right <laughs> forget it transcendental um so I don't recommend my career path to anybody because it was completely unique and yeah. some of it, some of it just happened and it was just, you know, I mean, I, I fell madly in love with somebody when I was 21 and we get married and started a family and I took a complete left turn and I was working in a music store. And, you know, when you look at it, like, what a, that's not a business plan. I just, I just, it was a combination of love and persistence and good fortune and super hard work. I mean, I, all right. So one advice, work your ass off. Okay. I don't care whether you start your own store, whether you go to work for another company, whatever they're like, you want to, you want to go places, you got to work hard. Like, like and anybody who tells you work life balance, forget it. There's no work life balance for any meaningful period of time, at least in your formative years, you've got to pay your dues. You got to work hard and you got to learn by yourself. Right. And I would say the other one is like work with good people, you know, because whether it's the boss or the people you're working with and all that there, um, you know, first of all, it's more fun. You learn. When I say good people, not just like good as in, you know, uh, a charity. I mean, good, good people, you know, uh, kind people, smart people, collaborative people, uh, people that, that you're going to you like working with every day and you're going to learn from and you're going to grow. You know, it's a, it's a whole, you know, collaboration thing I was talking about before, like, you get ideas, you bounce things off people, they bounce things off you. And just like you, your brain grows, you know, and your skills grow. And it's just like the days go by like that because you're with your people. So uh, I guess another way of saying that is you get into a bad situation. Sometimes you get to stick it out for a while, but you know, you don't want to do it for too long. You want to get, you want to get into a better situation. And sometimes that it's going to mean, you know, maybe moving back home for a while or, or whatever, but, uh, but work with good people. Yeah, on that note about the situations, you know, you mentioned that you've you've uprooted and moved, you know, around multiple times through your career. Were there any times where that was either a difficult decision or was it all just the opportunity that came up? I spent almost half my career in Boston. And then I, the first half of my career, 
roughly in Boston and the second half, you know, primarily on the West Coast. Um, uh, so I left Boston in 96 and retired in, in 2000. I should know this off the top of my head. So what, that's 24 years. I had a 45 year career. So yeah. So, so the second half of my career was the moving part, Boston to Florida, to Southern Cal, to Oregon, to back. And every one of those things was a move up, was a move up, was a move up, was a move up. A bigger opportunity, growth opportunity, and all that. And 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 it's hard doing it. You're rip, you know, my poor wife had to engineer every one of these moves. You're ripping your studio apart. You're ripping, she's ripping her cold studio apart. You're having to disconnect from friends. You have to find all new doctors and at banks. Mm-hmm. It's just a colossal thing. And it's just a price you pay you know, to get the opportunity. And it's, and it's difficult. It's part of that working your ass off thing. Um, and if you don't, if you're not going to do things that are, in, if you refuse to do things that are inconvenient, uh, I'm sorry, there's just things that are going to come along that you're, you're not going to be able to do, you know? So, and sometimes that's fine. You know, I, there's, there's a bunch of uh, opportunities I, I, I turned down. Uh, and, and over time I, I, I felt I made the right decisions because it was mostly because I had unease about the person or, you know, like, the company who was talking to me and or you know the culture there was just something about it like i'm not sold this could be a big step backwards I, i'm not doing this. Uh, all right but- i'm gonna give you my james lipton question uh charles bukowski said find what you love and let it kill you how does that make you feel <laughs> you know what there's, i think it's too much on this find what you love thing find what you're good at right because if you're good at it you will love it all right because uh, here's the whole here's the problem with what you love. Okay, if I had my way, I would have been the next Steve Howe. Okay, I didn't have anywhere near the talent to become the next Steve Howe or anybody like him. Okay, so find your love is a stupid piece of advice if you're not fucking wired to do what you love. And what if you're only a teenager and you know you love you know I, I could go on about all the different examples, right? But if you can find what you're good at. Um, it's kind of fun to be good at something, you know, and people will pay you for it and you get accolades and promotions and shit like that. It's just like, oh, I kind of like being good at things, you know? And so just find out what, it, it, like, I didn't know I was going to be good at retail. I was like, hey, no, I like, but my drummer's like, can you run the warehouse? Like, what? I want to do that. And so, and then, but, but then it led to, you know, being able to be on the sales floor and like, and then my boss, this guy's got some, Get some skills, I and mean, so then he lets me my first merchandising thing. Gene, you're in charge of microphones and effects pedals. You know, in the late seventies, Benny. Right, that's a pretty cool time to be charge of. Uh, I'm buying Tom Schultz coming in. I'm here. What's up? I got a photo of Tom Schultz handing handing me the first power show. You know, uh, before he did the Rockman. Right, it's just like like I'm in like magic land. You know. So, anyways, uh, the fine with you love thing is is a little dangerous because um, there's just too many. It's really more about find what you did. So, so my James Lipton response to that is, so basically what you're saying is find what you're good at and let that kill you. <laughs> Such a nihilist. Kill you. There was a great message there and you ruined it. Let things kill you. Letting things kill you is not good advice. Do not. Right, let, exactly. But, you know, there's nothing, disagrees. there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong to pushing yourself beyond your limit and finding out, okay, that's, that's beyond my limit and then dialing back. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's just like, are you guys aware of a professor named Scott Galloway from NYU Stern School of Business? Okay, so he he's all over. He has multiple podcasts. Um, uh, he sends out really good email. 
Just look him up. Scott Galloway. Write it down. Okay. Uh, I've se- yeah, I've seen him before. Yeah. Scott, yeah, write it down. Scott clarified for me uh, several years ago the whole bullshit about, you know, find what you love uh, and gets more, and he very, way more eloquently than me goes down the whole um, path of find what you're good at. And uh, uh, I think, I think it's a message that, you know, we need to be repeating. Do you think it's because it's, you know, any, any of those like cliches that are boiled down to oversimplified, you know, don't really no. hold up to scrutiny? Cause I, you could take, you could say that, you know, I guess, you know, a lot of people, maybe if they're open to being uh, tangently related to what they love, they can find opportunities and, and, and follow those paths. Um, you know, you, you, you know, cause you were technically not doing the music, but you were in a musical element and you got to meet people that were musicians and hang out with them. So you were still somewhat in that range. Not really. I consider no. serving musicians instead of being a musician. Very, okay. very different. Okay. Uh, and what allowed me to serve musicians was not my being a musician. It was my being organized, being, having a head for business, uh, choosing to do the work, to go to school, to get, to have all the courses and so on and so forth there. Um, and the fact that I'm serving musicians and talking to the people who were simpatico, we have a lot of the same loves and interests and all that, was just like so freaking cool. I wasn't, in other words, I wasn't a retailer selling appliances, you know, or hardware. I was selling musical instruments. So that's where I came from. So I got lucky that way. I got to work my entire career in the music industry. But working, working, serving musicians, whether it's on the manufacturing or the retail side, completely different career than being a musician. Listen to Nuno's stories. That's being a musician, okay? Mm-hmm. Sleeping in the fucking rehearsal space, on the fucking, you know, cases, you know, with rats and, and having the money. And, and when Burger King comes up with a two for a dollar thing, it's this, you know, this gift from heaven. You know, it's just like being poor, taking the ball of poverty, like, and just like, whatever. That's, you know, and I don't how many musicians I know who just like, they really, really gave up so much to get to the certain level there. And most of them didn't make it, okay? Most of them didn't make it. So tell that story, okay? Do what you love, okay? Well, do what you love, but just be prepared to have, you know, the fucking concrete smashed into your face, you know, at the end of a decade of put, put, putting all that stuff into it, you know? But no, just just know that, like, dude, I'm willing to make that, all right? I'm going to do that. I want to give it all I got. And and don't don't be 30 going, you know, God damn it, I wish I had given it all I got. Well, while you can, do it all you got. But don't pretend, you know, I'm you're guaranteed to make it at the other end because of this small percentage, right? So I didn't be a musician. I served musicians. No regrets. I, I did it because I was at a point in time where I knew I wasn't going to be Steve Howe. I knew I was madly in love with my wife of 46 years. And and I was the oldest of eight kids. She was the oldest of six. We wanted to raise a family, and we went down that path. Fast, and I was fortunate I had something I could pay the bills with, you know, and it was interesting, you know, and I could, I could grow it. That was just fortune, good fortune, you know, hard work, but also good fortune. Yeah. What an amazing journey you've had. It's, it's so great to hear from you and you have great advice and like, wow, <laughs> I don't even know how to summarize it. <laughs> yeah, no, we appreciate, appreciate you taking your time. I, I have you dumbfounded? <laughs> well, I, I, I love I love this because again, myself. So every everybody knows that Nam is a is a place where people go to showboat in this industry. And I really I got to tell you I've seen I've seen Michelangelo Badio, I've seen Jeff Loomis, I've seen John Petrucci, I've seen Paul Reed Smith, and and I I gotta say when I first met Gene Jolly, I've never seen a dude with more reverence around him with people just like oh that's him, that's the guy. 
Like, I swear, like, we had to, like, swim through the crowd to get to Gene. And, like, he has a demeanor that, like, when you're at Nam, which, by the way, it sounds like Nam, like Vietnam, because there's, like, fucking drummers (laughs) all playing drum circles simultaneously as guitars are all playing guitars simultaneously through loud amps and synthesizers. And then Gene's just yelling and people are just all trying to soak it in. So I just want to say thank you, Gene, for coming on. For getting me my first set of QSC K12.2s that have served me righteously and for just being such an illuminating person where we don't understand a lot of this stuff, especially being on the other end of the mirror. So it's it's pretty cool, man. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and uh, uh, never again. But uh, (laughs) Back to Crystal Knock. (laughs) Never. Never again. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, with that, you've been 2020. This, but uh, somehow we did. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. No, really. 20-D.com. Subscribe, please. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 73, featuring Elizabeth Jaroff, the charismatic voice. Check it out. Essentially, instead of me saying what people should know about, I need to go ask people what they want to know about. Say, what can I do for you? Not what can, not what do I think you need, but what do you want? Um, And then take whatever it is that people are wanting. If they're wanting reaction videos, okay, well, how can I make those reaction videos give a twist to it and make it something that I really value, which is uh, musical appreciation and vocal appreciation. And so the first one I did was a breakdown of a bunch of Fifth Element uh, diva dance singers. And I said, okay, well, this is like how they're doing it. And this is what they did here. And this is why this one's so cool. And this one's so cool in this way. And then it just, that's when it started the ball rolling. So I think like a really big blocker to a lot of people is putting out content that they say, everyone should love this. And in, instead sort of turning around and saying, what is, what is trending? And how can I make that something that is unique to me? I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.